I would have loved to have challenged ourselves to a point to where someone could defeat us. We're talking about practice. Not a game, not a game. We're talking about practice. Practice, man. I mean, how silly is that? See, because he's an intimidating personality. Like, everybody this, is this kissing his nuts. butt. Everybody's kissing his butt the whole time, but I come at him. People always tell me he's handsome. He's not handsome. Give it to him. Give it to him. Boom, shakalaka. So where did you get the killer instinct from as a basketball player? Isolation. You find solace in the game. And then when you play with kids that you know, might not accept you, but yet when we come to play the game, that's my chance to get vengeance on them for not accepting me. Did you know you were actually this good? No. <laughs> From the Irishman Abroad Podcast Network, this is an Irishman Abroad Inside Basketball Episode 2. Thank you for taking the time to rate, comment and subscribe to the show. If you'd like to hear more, if you want an extra chunk of this conversation, that's easy. Go to patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad, sign up for premium and you can get the unabridged conversation with Roland Lazenby, including an extra half an hour of bonus material and access to our entire back catalogue of interviews, including hundreds of other interviews that you can't find anywhere else. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. Well, what a trip it is to have Roland Lazenby on the show. I'm so happy he agreed to do this because for me, he's not just the author of the definitive Michael Jordan biography. He's also the author of five dozen non-fiction books on sports that I love, including books on the Final Four, Tom Brady, Jerry West, the Lakers, Kobe Bryant and Phil Jackson. If you haven't sought out any of these books, you really must, because this man, maybe more than anyone, had access to the Chicago Bulls during the 90s that not everybody had. Very few people got the insight that he did. But more than that, the deep and tireless research Roland Lazenby did into the life of Michael Jordan is beyond compare. He looks at not just Michael himself, his childhood, his upbringing, his development, but also his ancestors and how the Jordan phenomenon fits into the context of American history. It's a truly astonishing book and it's not surprising that it won the awards that it did. And it's not surprising that Jason Hare, the maker of The Last Dance, referred to it as his Bible while doing so. But before The Last Dance, there was this book, Blood on the Horns, another Roland Lazenby book, which was specifically about that last season. And if you're at a loss as to what to do now that The Last Dance is over, go and buy that book. I am so delighted that Roland agreed to this conversation and to be able to present it to you here as episode two of An Irishman Abroad Inside Basketball. Roland Lazenby, it is fantastic to have you on Irishman Inside Basketball. You know, you know this story. You've known this story for years. You've also known that Andy Thompson had this footage and that Andy Thompson was dying to get the green light to have this series made. Is it strange, having been in the centre of it, to now be transported back to all of the questions and confusion and excitement that was the final run of this Chicago Bulls team? 
Well, well, you know, I'm not sure it's strange. Uh, I, I think it's intensely interesting for me to see this story told with all the resources and all the approval and uh, the, the, the total power of, of ESPN mm. and the assembled media group. Mm. And so, you know, I, I, I was sort of a scavenger out there. I was never working for the New York Times or USA Today or the LA Times or one of the Chicago papers or Sports Illustrated in America. I, I was a guy with a book contract, always out there working and hustling, but a severe uh, outsider in a sense who suddenly found myself right in the midst of everything. Yeah. And so it was a fascinating era for me. And I'm in awe of all those resources now up <laughs> to the task of telling this story. Uh, and and I, I, I really enjoy it. I am supremely disappointed about one thing, however. What's that? Uh, in the first two segments, and I just realized this this morning, so I, I haven't said this in previous interviews, but the champion of this was Andy Thompson. Mm -hmm. He is a perfect champion. He's a perfect person to be involved, to be the face of this, mm -hmm. to be interviewed about all of the work he did, all of the things he had to do to take these camera crews behind the scenes. He sh you know, if you're lacing together a narrative of that season and you're using all this footage eventually, and I want to see more and more of the footage he shot, and it's sort of a mythical thing behind the scenes, this, this footage that was never allowed to see the light of day. Yeah. I would think that Andy Thompson would be one of your uh, characters from the start. Of course, a hundred percent. And uh, I mean, you, you obviously place a much greater value on perspective and the eyes through which the information and the story is seen like your book, Michael Jordan, The Life that was written long after uh, you wrote Blood on the Horns, really did focus on people like Ed Pickney, Steve Kerr, George Mumford, Scotty and more to get inside who Michael Jordan was. I mean, that seems to have been, correct me if I'm wrong, your preoccupation with that book was who and where did Michael Jordan emerge from? And were there other Jordan-esque, inverted commas, people before there was a cliche of things being Jordan-esque? Uh, it's true. I had written a biography of Jerry West and he, of course, is from southern West Virginia, where my father was an old two-handed set shooter, older than Jerry West, but out of the hills of southern West Virginia, there's a sort of a hillbilly basketball culture that extends through Kentucky into Indiana here in the United States. And my father was part of that play. He played against the original Celtics. Um, he played uh, a, more of a local circuit of semi-professional basketball, but he loved the game dearly, which is much of my motivation. And so when I wrote about Jerry West, 
I, I really wanted to put American basketball in, in the cultural context. Mm. And I wanted to put his lo- life in that cultural context, which is important. And uh, uh, the thing that changed my career uh, was a review from the L.A. Times of that book. Uh, my career had, had grown steadily, and I, this was for ESPN Books. It was a, this Jerry West project, but it was a big thing. And uh, the L.A. Times said, you know, this is a, a fascinating piece, and, and I'm paraphrasing here probably way too much of my own <laughs> favor. But a fascinating piece of narrative nonfiction about a guy who just happens to be a uh, famous basketball player. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I went back four or 500 years with Jerry West. He, his, his people were uh, nobility. He was Lord de la War, Thomas West, a colonial governor of Virginia. Of course, the state of Delaware, the Delaware River, the Delaware Indians, all of that named after him. Really? And there was one of the heirs in the family, a couple of generations down the road that got kicked out of the family and uh, ended up going over to the wilds of West Virginia, which was a place nobody lived. It was very mountainous. It was uh, hunting grounds for Native Americans. There was a lot of violence over there. And so the West family ended up being dirt-scratching hillbillies and then coal miners and uh, went from great wealth to poverty. Wow. And so there, there's always a saga that that is the larger framework. I mean, it's great that we can get in the tube and lose ourselves in the competition of a sport. But what does it all mean within the larger culture? And so when I decided, because of all my experiences, to do the biography on Jordan, I sold it as a larger context. I don't think Little Brown, my publisher, realized. (laughs) They They did hire me because of the Jerry West book. And so uh, they had to assume I was going big on the context. And you, uh, I don't you really how big I would go. Yeah, and big you did go. I mean, trawling through five thousand death certificates, going right back to his great grandfather. I mean, you went in for the deep dive. You approached Michael to be part of it, and he agreed on the understanding that he would have control of it, and that wasn't what you wanted, that the book that was needed, you said, was an independent biography, which I think the book is testament to that and its success is testament to that. But I wanted to ask you, was there any... I would clarify one thing. It it was not Michael who... Michael answered a couple of questions for me. I went and talked to him personally. I later approached his representative. Okay. And um, by then, you, you know, they... They, they weren't sure at all, and for them to be sure, it would have to begin with, with that. All the books basically about Michael, for the most part, there were some that weren't, but a number of them were uh, under his control. Mm. Uh, Sam Smith's book, a fabulous book, The Jordan Rules, about the 91 season, was not uh, an, obviously an official publication. David Halberstam's outstanding biography. Uh, He was working on that as I was working on Blood on the Horns. 
but he couldn't secure an interview with Michael Jordan at any of that time. And so his biography is fantastic, too. Uh, he is my hero. So I, I, I don't place mine above his. I, anyway, I just wanted to clear up that point. Yeah, no, that, and that is important to clarify, and it ties into what I wanted to ask, because as you say, um, there were books around, and it seems like the narrative of who Michael Jordan was at that time was closely guarded, heavily scripted and with all the vested interests, nearly the building of a legend that would be etched into stone. So when you do what you do, what you've just described, going back and really deep into the darker corners even of this, I'm sure there's a part of you uh, and a part of them that worries about that. Did you think about the intrusion that comes with this, that you'd be lifting up the rocks of family history and maybe finding things that aren't exactly in keeping with the McDonald's twinkly, absolutely gleaming history of MJ? <clears throat> yes, I was just having a conversation. One of the reasons I missed our original hour here is that I was having this long involved conversation with George Mumford, my dear friend, the, the global mindfulness expert who was the mindfulness expert in the, the Zen Masters Zen Master for those Bulls teams and later for Phil Jackson's Lakers teams. And we were going over, you know, I, I often talk with George about his life, my own, and our experiences. He is a, a treasure of a friend. Mm. And, you know, I got into the conversation that deals with getting into the real lives of these people. And my, my, I'm married to a wonderful woman. I've been married 45 years. She's snickering in the background. <laughs> as a but she would always say, why can't you write a biography about a deceased person so that <laughs> we don't encounter all this conflict? Because it's, it's very, very difficult for everybody involved. I've, you've probably, you obviously have tremendous background before you've done a lot of work before conducting this interview. My hat is off to you. I often say it's like conducting an autopsy on a person while they're still living to do a biography of a living person. And it's not it's not a great path to popularity sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's an understatement. I mean, there's a couple of things that I, uh, I'd love to ask you about, about that uncovering and that and that depth of uh, research that you go into these tomes. And for the listeners that haven't bought Showboat or don't have the life on their shelf, which I'm sure they will after this, these are hefty books. These are and, and I'm sure they were edited down. This is the reality of it. But there's oh, the, the Jordan manuscript was over a thousand pages. It's um, but but, you know, the editor said, don't worry about it. I'll cut it at Little Brown. <laughs> right. Because you, you three months went by and he came back to me and said, I tried. I can't do it. you got to cut it. <laughs> no way. But, but um, I want to say uh, No Country for Old Men, the author there, uh, wrote a fabulous book 
It became a film. We had a manuscript that was like 500 pages, and they they, they edited it down to this marvelous read. Yeah. That was uh, so important. I said, if they can edit that guy, they can have at it with me. I'm not... <laughs> As long as they're as long as they're up to the task, I'm good for it. Well, in so many ways, I'm fascinated with the long form, and and as much as we talk about the modern era being about the the quick uh, Instagram feed, the scroll through, the five second knockout, the UFC, and the instant gratification, I think that there is an appetite for the long form, and I'm probably proof of that with. The podcasts that I make, we get time to really go long, really ask the question and hear the long answer that it deserves. And in that way, the life in particular uncovered a few things that I really, a lot of things that I really didn't know as someone who thought they knew it all. Specifically, the one that really blew my mind out my ears right away was it's built as the turning point in his life, being cut from junior varsity and how he went home and it ignited the fire and created the competitive drive. When, in fact, as you painted, the decision not to put him on that team was because Michael Jordan was recognized by those very astute coaches as a scorer who needed a place to grow. Can you talk to us through that and when you realized that actually the story as we understand it is not the truth? Uh, and yes, you know, I, I rather than saying it's not the truth, I, I think that the great value of biography and the great value of a friend like George Mumford, who has read everything and is so perceptive, he he said something to me very simple long ago that really hit me like a hammer and it changed the way I taught journalism in college here in the United States. He said, you really have to look very hard at what people do rather than what they say. Mm-hmm. And so that, that has sort of been one of my touchstones. You, and so we all sift through experience. And sometimes it takes years to understand why people do what they do, why we ourselves do what they do. And the process of writing Michael Jordan, I I probably had an understanding of my own life right under the surface, but it never really brought it into clear focus. I, I was already a journalist. I'd been a sports journalist, and then I was back into news and writing features, and my father died of brain cancer. And I had played uh, a year of college football and three years of college rugby, and he was a basketball guy. And his death was very hard. I was a news writer at the time, covering police and crime, and I had to work nights. And he was in a local hospital. I had to go over there and sit up with him. And it was a profound experience for me. It, it, was, a, it was not a, uh, a, a death with a lot of dignity. And I was so affected by that. I, I remembered going out. I used to play pickup basketball all the time. It's great fun 
But I became obsessed with it after that. And I, I right after his death, I went into grad school and the graduate writing program at Hollins while I was working all of these hours at the newspaper. And I was there to write fiction and poetry, but I ended up writing a nonfiction basketball book, my first book. And it was like, you know, Michael Jordan's life was based on fatherly disapproval. And it wasn't uh, a heavy, burdensome thing in my own life, but my father had expectations for me. Sure. And I really didn't have a thought about his expectations. <laughs> I was not aware of them. But as I look back, I understood that why he would say the things he would say to me. And as I was doing my 70th or whatever number of books it was, and not all of them are full length by any means, a lot of texts for picture books and whatnot. But as I was doing this book about Michael Jordan, and I, I was writing about the influence his father's disapproval of him had on his own life, all of that below the surface just popped up how could I not understand something that was so obvious in my own life that, mm -hmm. that I had been writing basketball book after basketball book after basketball book? And believe me, I covered a lot of topics in nonfiction before I ended up in, in this thing. And part of it was the practicality that once I did that first basketball book, there were many contracts available in that particular era for me to work. But it was really just as Michael Jordan spent his life, never mind that there was much love between father and son, and his father came to really, 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 I mean, prize Michael, this, this kid he had been displeased with as a child. I mean, really prized him. He was the, uh, the golden figure, but despite all that, Michael was still yelling at his father with all this anger, this competitive fury across the decades. Yeah. That was sort of my conversation with my own old man. I was saying, here, look at me. And I, I think that's a fascinating thing. It also, by taking this deeper dive on the Jordan family, and there are painful things I got into with mm -hmm. it that – Michael went from being a friend and somebody who would give me time to being someone who's absolutely furious, as you can imagine, Michael can be. But the the sibling rivalry aspect of it is is just a huge thing. And I've, I, I have three kids and two of them are involved and have been involved. They love each other dearly but a ferocious sibling rivalry that can interrupt a, a holiday in a minute at the dinner table or wherever we are. They've put it on ice for a few years now, but everybody in the family sort of has, let's hope it doesn't happen this year. <laughs> yeah. That's human nature. Those, that's families everywhere. Totally normal, yeah. And, and so this journey connects I think in a very big way, and I love to do it. I have to clear one thing up. 
that basketball thing was preceded by another staggering event for young Michael Jordan. And that is his father loved baseball. And it was not a black sport. Michael Jordan was playing baseball on a team that had one other black kid, and those were the only two black kids that had been on this team. And this this went on for decades. It was it was just considered a white sport. But his it was back in in generations, a couple of generations. In the South, uh, you had this community baseball, and uh, African-Americans were wonderful baseball players, but they they just weren't on a pipeline anywhere. Mm. And baseball was not the place that, I mean, it offered opportunity, but somehow there was a cultural divide there. And Michael Jordan was an incredible little league baseball player through age 12. And in America, we have today the Little League World Series. It's now broadcast Mm -hmm. on ESPN and a big deal. We get it over here as well, yeah. Back then, it was a quieter thing, of course. But Michael was a pitcher. He was able to do all kinds of things. Uh, one of the family cousins who watched him some during that era, that they all thought he was going to be another great Bob Gibson or one of the other great pitchers in American history, in American baseball history. And at 12 years old, he was dominant. Hmm. And he, now he threw two no-hitters on the way to taking his Wilmington team within a whisker of the Little League World Series, a regional final to go on, and even hit a 240-foot home run to tie the game late in the game. And his father would talk for years about that to the Chicago media and anyone who would listen about Michael's baseball prowess. And the very next year, he moved up to Dixie League, I think they called it, baseball for 13 and 14 year olds. And I talked to his coach extensively. And of course, Michael had trouble getting off the bench in that league. The base paths were longer. He was never dominant. He was never an all-star even. He had been in little league, the North Carolina state player of the year. He got a scholarship to go to a baseball camp as a a prize for that. He had his father. Mm. And it all disappeared. He played high school baseball and never made better than like second team or honorable all mention in public school baseball. If you know the evidence of his profound disappointment at failure, at winning that relationship with his father, this all came to play right as he was headed into that very painful conflict over whether he would advance to the varsity as a sophomore. It led to the fact that nobody in America knew much about him until right before his senior season, he had uh, the good fortune to get into a couple of camps. You paint it so perfectly that like, you know, I love your answers because, you know, they're really reflective of the level of detail that you 
manage to cram into these pages and stuff that nobody ever knew. And in terms of making sense of it, like he is an anomaly. He doesn't make a load of sense it, uh, to the outsider who this kind of one off drops onto the planet. But of course, there's reasons. There's reasons. And th- these things emerge from somewhere. And as you say, the slight and the remembering of uh, uh, wrongs that were done and, as you say, defeats that were taken is definitely a characteristic that uh, has been spun in a positive way or uh, look is a positive thing because it's what's produced the the winning that was to follow. But uh, the man that George Mumford described seeing was by his understanding of psychology truly a, a strange individual when you said when he saw him after returning from baseball he had a rage an absolute uh, I guess it's like the Joker uh, from uh, the Dark Knight sense of burning the whole thing down, absolutely driven through an anger that was relentless to George Mumford's mind. You said it; he was waiting for him to, to ease off, but it didn't ease off. I loved that you kind of tapped into where the anger came from. And as, as you say, it, it does emanate from Larry and the fights back in the yard because the one-on-one games that those two had essentially modelled the behaviour for how he would treat all his teammates and all of his opponents for the decades to follow, correct? Yes, and I, I think Michael's father was so important in his life. He was the primary challenger. He was the figure that Michael spent his life answering. Hmm. And I, I, I just think of the death of my own father. And obviously, I spent my life, my professional life, answering him. Hmm. And I understand that part of it. I, I think people everywhere have these kinds of things to deal with. Uh, parental disapproval, uh, sibling rivalry. And it drives them in different fashions. And this is the meeting ground of where an everyday person can find common ground with a an alien figure such as Michael Jordan, who seems to have come down with these amazing powers of listening and concentration, uh, focus and fierceness and jumping and strength and ferocity i mean he is the he is this figure in real life we are getting to see this in this series uh you can see his his competitive nature flies beyond reason it flies beyond human decency it flies in the face of so many things we like to value you know one thing one thing that uh you had to carefully navigate right was when you were getting these sit downs with him and you knew i've got to talk to him about these 
darker elements of what you were describing just now, this otherworldly competitive drive and the bullying that went with it. The trash talking that obviously started with Larry in the backyard to win the approval of his father. The abuse of Jerry Krause, the team's general manager. <laughs> And this was epic. The things he would say to him and with the team laughing uh, on the back of that bus. And Phil Jackson is reduced to this powerless figure as he sits there. And everybody blames him for allowing Michael to viciously, you know, he'd had a few beers after mm. big victories in Utah in the 97 playoffs uh, in the finals. And to, for Phil to allow this to happen, and it it gets uncomfortable, and Michael is just, it's blood in the water for him. He's just on the attack against this man he intensely dislikes. Yeah, and, uh, the, you know, that is, I guess it's, I, I described the last dance as the making a murderer of sports documentaries, because it is essentially a, a who done it in some ways that there is a miscarriage of justice in that this team should never have been broken up in the manner in which it was but who done it is it down to Krauss is it down to Reinsdorf is it down to Phil and Michael and Scotty being unable to have the personal skills to win these people over or who is at fault I mean to a large extent in your book you describe uh, Krauss the way they I think they touched on I mean it's very hard for them to put across what you did in the space of two hours but he was a man who couldn't get out of his own way in the sense that he, he, he wanted people who didn't like him to like him and he just didn't know in the way someone who is seen as a try hard in school kind of every time they try they make it kind of worse including kind of interrupting Michael in his pregame routine of going to the loo before the game. Do you, <laughs> do you see him as the main reason? Or are you, like me, thinking that Reinsdorf could have solved all of this? Oh, he could have. And I think that is where... I think they're all at fault. On the other hand, they won six championships. Hmm. And we want more. <laughs> It's about all of us wanting more out of this because this is one of those, I don't know how, do you know how hard it is to translate a 700-page book? I, I, they, they talk to me now. I'm writing a book on Magic Johnson, my agent and the editors, and they're saying, please, please have mercy. We, you know, the people who edit these books, Jordan is in 15 languages. Nobody knows who I am as a writer, but they are fascinated with Jordan. And, and they must figure that somewhere in 700 pages, they're going to get some answers to the clues. But it, to me, it's an indication of that fascination. And, it, you know, nobody cared about American pro basketball. It, it, I, and I remember my Kobe Bryant book was uh, a finalist for Biography of the Year by the Cross British Sports Book Awards, mm. uh, which fall in prey to financial difficulties since 2017. But we went over to London for the thing as a lark and got over there. And of course, the UK celebrates an amazing 
sort of wet market of sports. I mean, you can you can taste anything mm-hmm. in the UK, except maybe basketball. Except basketball. It's crazy. So I was stunned that they would nominate my book. I'm not sure how it happened. But um, the fact that Jordan could bring that kind of global attention to this American game, which has had tremendous growth globally as a result. And it grew from the first time it was invented. Within, it was invented at uh, the School for Christian Workers, a YMCA school in Springfield, Massachusetts, by Dr. James Naismith. And they were training YMCA secretaries to go all over the world. And so they were playing basketball in China like two months after the game was invented. And, and so it's had that that potential global reach, much like what you call football or association football. Mm. It has that appeal, very different from association football. But Jordan, well, I call him the archangel of the the rims for a reason. He 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 really has attracted that fascination beyond any anything else that's happened in probably in America. Like you said at the very start, uh, you were in the center of it all. And I guess, you know, history is understood in uh, hindsight and slow motion in, in, the, in that way that it seems so prophetic, the book uh, Blood on the Horns now, in that you managed to get context on how it was playing out. And if anybody has watched The Last Dance and would like kind of extracurricular reading, that's the book to get because essentially it pulls apart every thread and looks at each one under a microscope as to how this came to be and how Phil ultimately, as they said, rode off into the sunset. But you were one, if not the first person to sit down with Phil Jackson for two hours and when nobody knew he hated Jerry Krause, he lights him up in front of you, says things that you're scrambling to grab tapes to get it all because you can't believe what you're hearing. Do you remember that moment? And do you remember thinking, I'm in deep shit if I don't run this by somebody before I put this out? Well, I was hired to write the history of the Bulls. It was one of these deals with the Bulls and an American publisher. And so I'm going in to do an oral history, basically. I'm talking to everybody. Okay. And so Phil is in the eye of the storm. It's typical of writing history that the guys who are under the Kaliga lights don't have time to talk. Mm. And all the old timers have fascinating, charming stories. And so I, I, I spend all this time talking to, you know, Chicago was a graveyard for pro basketball teams. And, and pro basketball in America was sort of a graveyard itself. They had so many franchises start and die. And, you know, it was uh, crazy. And uh, so I'm in there viewing all these people. And finally, I'm going to get a chance to talk to Phil Jackson. And I'm warned it might be five to ten minutes. And I have to really think, how am I going to? And this is, you you mentioned earlier that I had to prepare to get Michael to talk. And I'm not an important person. 
I am there sort of, you know, I love talking to the, um, the equipment managers, the, uh, the trainers, uh, the 40 year old guys picking up the socks and jocks in the locker room. Uh, I love their perspective when I do my books and they're like me. They're not important people in that regard. Mm. And so, but I really plan for this and I think a lot, how am I going to talk to Phil? And I had had the blessing of interviewing everybody virtually in the NBA for a, a history of the NBA finals. I came up with the idea, sold it to a publisher. The NBA back then was sort of wild, wild west. They liked the idea. They didn't know who I was. I was some hillbilly from Virginia. <laughs> but I, I had already done a good bit of NBA work, and so they bought and so I go around interviewing everybody, and I spend a lot of time with John Kunla, who was the coach of George Mikan and Jim Pollard, the first great Lakers team that won six pro championships, five of them in the NBA, <clears throat> one of them in another league. And he lived in Minnesota. He was in the late 80s, early 90s. He was... I don't know, probably 90 years old and blessed with incredible genes, crystal clear memory. And I spent hours talking to him and he went on to live um, another decade and he had won those championships and had never, when I was interviewing him, had never been voted into the Hall of Fame, which is astounding. Mm. And it wasn't, I believe, until 1994 that he was finally voted in and they uh, the the thing against him was they said well george mikan and jim pollard were so talented john kunla didn't do anything my god and, and of course john kunla is the one who pushed the original pick and roll play which is the heart of basketball today every time i see a screen and roll on tv i think of the great john kunla but anyway i have to do this interview with phil and He's doing this because he has to. Mm. And there are so many people covering, and they're all so important. They're representing all the big media organizations. And like I said, I'm this scavenger. But I come in and I figure I get a chance. I'm going to throw him a hardball. But I'm not going to throw it. I'm going to put something on it so that he won't recognize it as a hardball. But I want to play a mind game with him because I've studied this guy and I want to mess with him. And so I ask him if uh, about John Kuhnle, which what I'm doing when I ask him, I'm lighting up the fact that John Kuhnle later coached at the University of Minnesota and had recruited Phil out of high school to play for him. So I'm touching that, but I'm really getting to the fact because the clouds are already gathering around Michael Jordan. Uh, even he's left at that time when I've interviewing Phil, he's, he's just getting ready to come back. And the idea was that Jordan coached these teams. It wasn't Phil Jackson. And I could see Phil getting into the hall of fame, maybe in 2040. And so I'm asking him about John Kuhnla. And the whole thing changes. Uh, I don't know if you do any fishing, but, you know, if you have uh, 
if you have a big old fish come out of nowhere and hit hard on what you're doing, he literally rose up out of the chair, lifted up a bit, <laughs> levitated to answer that question. And it changed my life because he went from that question to laying out everything, that two-hour session. He told a major lie to me to defend uh, – a very low thing that he had done while coach of the Bulls. And then he went on to just trash Jerry Krause. What was the major lie before you go on? Sam Smith wrote a book that revealed very negative things about Jerry Krause and Michael Jordan. And the one thing that they agreed on was that they hated Sam Smith's book. And it was wildly popular, The Jordan Rules. Mm. Uh, because it revealed for the first time uh, some of this odd behavior from Jordan and the, the Krause's uh, strange personality. And so Phil let it be known that Johnny Bach had provided that information, his assistant coach, uh, the guy gotcha. who really there in Jordan's ear. Phil was trying to get Jordan to slow down and play the triangle. And J Johnny Bach would pop up off the bench as the timeout was happening and he'd get in Jordan's ear coming off the floor. And he'd quote Admiral Bull Halsey attack. from World War II. Attack, <laughs> attack, attack. And, you know, Phil was like all coaches, a control freak. Yeah. And so suddenly Phil is actually the guy and Sam Smith, who's pissed at me for reporting this, but Jerry Reinsdorf, when blood on the horns, when they saw the pages of blood on the horns and when I let everybody look at them before it went to press, they came back with, you don't know about Phil. You don't know what he did to Johnny Bach. You don't know what, and I'd already had some stories of some other low behaviors from Phil Jackson. You know, he had this sacred hoops. He was the son of, as Johnny Bach said, two tent preachers, two fundamentalist preachers. He, his press conferences were almost like he was the pastor leading the group. Mm. Phil had this aura and, the, the staff around the Bulls was going, screw him. He's an arrogant prick. You know, he he did this or he did that. Mm -hmm. But the big beef, Johnny Bott got fired. He He's one of the all-time loves figures in, in the insular business of American basketball. He was, and Jordan loved him. And Phil had wanted to get rid of that voice. And he told me, uh, Phil lied to me. He said, there's no question that Johnny Bach provided the information for that book and that Jerry Krause hated him for it. And I had to fire him. And Johnny Bach had a heart attack. His life went out of control. He was near 70 when he got fired. It was a stunner. It was after a very successful 94 season. He couldn't understand Jerry Krause just hated Johnny Bach for being the guy who provided all mm. that stuff to Sam Smith. And Sam Smith had told Jerry Reinsdorf. That's how Reinsdorf and Krause came back to me. Sam Smith had confided to Reinsdorf that it wasn't Bach, so, uh, it, it, that there were a lot of people providing, and one of the big ones was Phil. 
And so that's why Sam Smith got mad at me. But I had to explain all of this, how it factored into all the spite. And Johnny Bach later got a job coaching at Detroit. By that season, he was coaching in Charlotte, as I remember. But uh, he came through with Detroit, and Johnny told me all this. And Jerry had a tearful, wanted to see him. And Kraus, I mean, uh, Jerry Kraus wanted to see him. And Bach wasn't sure what to do. And he went in, and Kraus was just tearful, begging for forgiveness for having uh, fired him. Yeah. Phil had had done all of this. It was Phil all along. Like, that's crazy. And the fact is, and, and I sent this to Phil. And now I have to back up a second because this wasn't all blood on the horns. I learned this in the proofs for blood on the horns and made mention of it. But when I did mind games, my biography of Phil Jackson, I went in deep on it, got all the interviews. I got Johnny Bach to talk about it. Kraus talked about it. And I wrote the manuscript for mind games. I was under tremendous duress doing cranking out these books. Mm. And I sent Phil the manuscript. And never heard a word from him. And in early 2019, I got an email from Phil. 20 years later, almost, answering very obtusely about my manuscript. 20 years later? Yes. And he had done his book, 11 Rings, by then. Mm. And so I was stunned that twice in his autobiography, this was before he finally answered me, they cited my uh, unauthorized biography of him in the text and in the footnotes. Who would cite an unauthorized biography in the election? Seven Rings, the story of his great accomplishment. Yeah. And this is Phil, though. These are the mind games. This was his. And Phil, I paid a dear price for this, I should add. By then, Phil was the coach of the Lakers. Fortunately, I was very close with Tex Winter, and Tex would not. He would tell me everything going on. And, of course, Phil set out to trash me and my reputation behind my back. And Tex stood by me the whole way. And Tex, you know, would would say things to him about it. But, you know, I I did a major documentary on Kobe that ran on 500 stations. I had all of them sit down to talk. Uh, I I arranged the whole thing for uh, Intersport TV of Chicago. It was a huge success, and that was it. After that, I was banned basically from covering Lakers basketball. Now I would, could cover them during the playoffs and they would give me, they had to give me playoff credentials, but I would do things like I would be hired to go out there and cover a story. And, you know, back then I had to do it on short notice. Those were $2,000 flights from the East coast to the West mm. one time. And I get out there and they pulled my credential and there were that, you know, I would be on the radio and, they had a PR director who would call up and fuss at the radio station if I was on. It was really an all-out assault, and and Tex kept telling me, 
they tell me repeatedly never to talk to you. And so I, I had to weather a lot there. I, you know, I've never discussed this much. I mean, I was uh, like, this was, you know, central to what I wanted to talk to you about was the life that you've led and the career that you've had is so based around winning trust and not exploiting people while also having to tell the story that mightn't be the perfect story for them uh, because the truth often hurts and because there's different versions of events. Uh, everybody has their reasons for doing things. But I had no idea that this is effectively a, a blackballing attempt of, of, on you for many years as a result of all of this. Well, you know, I, I have to say I'm a big boy. <laughs> I, um, at a certain point, if you publish hard things about people, you can send them the manuscript ahead of time. But, uh, you know, I, there's an old saying in football, you better buckle your chin strap. And if I'm going, and I'm a guy basically without a lot, lot of power. And I'm going up against the most powerful people in sport. And I'm very imperfect at what I do. It First of all, uh, limited resources. Some of these books, I would get paid like a $10,000 advance back when I was, I was doing lots of books. This was not uh, easy. Now, I might, the publisher would get me some travel expenses, but I had to have four or five projects going at once just to survive. Wow. I had no idea. I had no and, idea. And the, the value of my contracts over time grew dramatically. But my whole allegiance then, I looked at, when I say I'm a scavenger, I'm sort of a guy, I watch basketball become very big business. And uh, the the NBA I started working in is no longer here. I mean, we, we had access to going to locker rooms, we being reporters and people with press credentials, had access to going to locker rooms, talk to people, talk to coaches. The All-Star Game was a feast of interviews. It is now impossible. It's a global sport, thousands of people, everything is managed from a PR standpoint. Let me but I was... I was not a power player, mm. but I had one loyalty. I said, this is a big business. Every team sort of had a false front they put up. The Lakers were notorious for it. You, you reported the false front. It was like Oz, you know? Mm. Don't look at the man behind the <laughs> curtain. And that worked. I mean, they had to have that. Probably because basketball was a challenge financially. These were tough people, and uh, it, you know they it was a life or death business, and uh, you know it was just a hard business. And I really was a guy in the TV contracts. They finally got it. It was all a TV production. They were making big money there. That helped them sell. It became an event. And the the bigger. Uh, Magic Johnson and Larry Bird became then the huge level that Jordan became. And they didn't know what they were going to do. And then here comes Kobe uh, and LeBron and uh, all these different figures. But 
I viewed two things uh, to explain. My role was to sort of get in the creases and all this, you know, the, the whole theory is staged events. That's what public relations is. We stage events for people to witness. And if we hype them correctly, and that's what a sporting event is. It's a staged event. Uh, we may remember a game, but a, a lot of times, uh, you know, who won the who won the World Cup eight years ago? Can you answer instantly? At the moment, it's the biggest thing. Now, there are people out there who can tell you, I know who won it. Mm. But it, it is the hype of the moment for these staged events. And my goal was always to sort of get around them. Now, this is an odd goal for somebody who was first hired in the business to do official team books. But, you know, it was my entree. But my goal was to find those moments and tell the truth, whether it's a a Charles Barkley interview at an early all-star game in the nineties where nobody knew what to make of Charles, but here was all of his great humor on display. I wanted to show that I, you know, I wanted to, to get in the creases of the game and show what was real. And I also thought we have all these fans ponying up all this money to support these things. And they, uh, this is idolatry and that's fine. They love this. And I loved it too. But I thought, wow, we need some truth in here. And so I I really just tried to report about people as I found them. You could say it was naive, but it was my um, it was my touchstone. Uh, sometimes I did a really good job of that. Absolutely. Sometimes I did. Absolutely. Uh, and I don't have. I was talking, as I said, as we started this conversation. I was talking with George Mumford about it, and uh, you know he he always has a great sense of humor about it. But I said, uh, you know, and the big thing was. The reason Michael hates me is that his sister had claimed for his older sister claimed for decades that Michael's father had sexually abused her. She claimed this as a teenager. It was a tremendously brutal uh, issue for the family, as you can imagine. It it just the allegation itself. I had no idea if it was true or not, but the allegation was consistent. She wrote a book about it the copies of that book she uh, published privately. A lot of them had disappeared. I happened to have one. I struggled with what to do about that allegation about James Jordan, but it wasn't just that one thing. His, uh, you know, he was in trouble. He cut a lot of corners. He was a troubled guy and he was in a troubled situation when he disappeared and was murdered. He was in a. You say he was in a troubling situation. I know. I know about the the flight twenty three stores, the absolute nightmare that he right. became there, and how Michael had to take the stores back off him, and how difficult that must have been, particularly when, with everything you've said, he looked up to him so much. But what do you mean about a difficult situation? Well, how to deal with these allegations of sexual abuse okay. of a beloved father of a worldwide idol. And so I went down to the UNC library to do some research. I had, I had labored over this thing, you know, 
it's the kind of thing where I began, I couldn't sleep. The Just the burden of writing this book. I, I You know, I would go to bed about 8 and get up at 2 a.m. I just couldn't sleep anymore, and I would write all night. And I, and I did this through the Kobe Bryant book, too. It was just... It just broke down my health. It broke down my spirit. It really was a crushing load to do these biographies. And I was agonizing, but I went to the University of North Carolina library and there on special collections was Michael Jordan's sister's book filled with these allegations. And I said, am I a biographer or not? Am, am I going to really explain this story or am I not? And I'll never know. I'll go to my grave. I was telling George today, you know. And early on in my newspaper career, one of my editors said to me, I battled sometimes with editors. One of them said, the one thing I like about you, Lazenby, is that you just don't give a damn. You, you want to, you're not thinking about and I am a thoughtful person. I am not cold. And uh, but he said, you, you, "You just put the story there. You you don't worry about who it affects." And that's not entirely true. There were things I kept out of the Kobe Bryant book. There were things I kept out of the Jerry West book. There were things I kept out of the Jordan book. What kind of things? Also, these books undergo intense legal scrutiny. Of course, yeah. And some of them, you know, are questioned. Uh, but there were things that I controlled that didn't go into those mm. books. But To prevent uh, them from becoming sordid. Right. But there's no, in all honesty, there's no good answer to these questions about where you go and where you don't. Mm. And sometimes... I just said, I, I don't want to harm these people. Uh, sometimes uh, I had to think this information, this explanation can be liberating. I know that Michael shook my hand after the book came out. And I know that I went to Hornets game and I'm usually the guy on the press credential. I'm there to do interviews. I'm not there to sit right courtside and be the cock of the walk and and all of this stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. I don't have those primo press seats for games. I'm just not that important. But I go down to Charlotte after I have this book, and the Hornets PR staff puts me front and center. They they treat me like, I mean, everybody's always been nice to me around the NBA. I, I did suffer a lot at the hands of Phil Jackson. And I do want to add one point there. But they the Hornets put me front and center. And I really brought out what happened to Johnny Bach. Michael Jordan, when he went in the Hall of Fame, he bought Johnny Bach a new suit of, a new suit of clothes and put him on his airplane and took him to the Hall of Fame with him. And Mike and uh, Phil Jackson watched it from a sports bar. And I, it's not what people say, it's what they do. I go back to that. Whatever mistakes I've made, I have to live with those. I made sure I did not hype 
the allegations of the sister. It wasn't something you saw coming. It was there in the book. It was three or four pages and I was done, mm-hmm. but it, it, it explained a lot of this conflict that just kept rolling through the lives of this family that in so many ways was very admirable. Well, Roland, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I mean, it really is a book that I am dying to read, the Magic Johnson book, when you have it done. I've no doubt that it'll, as a trio, showboat the life and the Magic Johnson book will just be a must-have for any basketball fan. And like I said to the listeners, you need to invest in these books to fully understand these people. And uh, I'm just so grateful that you took the time to do this. Thank you so much. Well, you know, I, I do a lot of interviews. Well, they come at me from a lot of places. I don't know who you are. You're from Ireland. <laughs> I've never had an interview like this in my life where, where someone has worked so hard to put me in a position to discuss the uneasy truth of my life but I thank you for it you're very welcome Roland Lazenby hopefully our paths cross and we can have a pint of Guinness together at some point in the future Uh, that that would be uh, top on my list after this experience Well, what can you say about Roland Lazenby? Well, what I can say is there's more to this conversation. Why not go over and enjoy an extra half an hour conversation with this man? We get to go even further into detail. A lot more covered over on patreon.com forward slash Irishmanabroad. If you can afford to do that and support this show and all our shows, you'll be uh, really allowing us to continue making podcasts. Uh, Obviously, it's difficult times for everybody. It's difficult times in the podcast industry. So that's all I ask if you can afford it. If you can't, just go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Rate, comment and subscribe to us. And that'll be more than enough. Very quick thanks to everybody who got in touch this week about last week's episode with Pat Burke. I mean, what a way to start the series with the only Irishman ever to play in the NBA. It was a really fun chat. And if you haven't listened to it yet, go back and do so next time on the show we will have Susan Moran the only Irish woman ever to play in the WNBA a true legend of Irish sport and uh, one that I was uh, took a while to get to her but we got there and boy boy she does not let down in that conversation our chosen charity partner for all of our podcasts is Jigsaw.ie Jigsaw.ie are a mental health charity that help young people across Ireland across communities by setting up seminars and uh, web content for young people to gain the mental health skills they need to survive this pandemic and life in general. They do astonishing work across all sectors and they've seen a 400% rise in demand for their services since the lockdown began. If you can, please help them or go and check out what they have on offer. It's jigsawonline.ie or to make a donation, jigsaw.ie forward slash now. Please do get in touch with the podcast if you like what you're hearing or if you have someone that you recommend for the show that you'd like me to get in touch with. The email address is irishmanabroadpodcast at gmail.com. That's irishmanabroadpodcast, one podcast, irishmanabroadpodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. If you can sign up to Patreon, I guarantee you, you will enjoy what's coming from Roland in the final section of this chat. 
But finally, my thanks to Brian Connolly for his production, to Tina and Mikey for making it all possible. And I will see you next time for another episode of Irishman Inside Basketball.